Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News for the week of March 30th, 2023. I'm Gregory Haddock. For today's reading, we will be covering the following stories. Arvada Library reopens to public. Meth contamination remediated. Curbside Lane reopened last week. Library opened March 27th by Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Remembering Moses Walker, a musician and friend beyond compare. The Clam Daddies band leader passed away in March after one last big show at the O. By Riley Dunn for the Arvada Press. Mind Softball defeats CSU Pueblo in Windswept Series by Corinne Westerman for the Golden Transcript. New Edgewater Bakery asks customers to think outside the box by Corinne Westerman for the Jeffco Transcript. Polis targets local land use in bid to make housing less costly by Jesse Paul and Elliot Winsler of the Jeffco Transcript. And following up with various articles. Arvada Library reopens to public. Meth contamination remediated. Curbside Lane reopened last week. Library opened March 27th by Riley Dunn. Arvadans can now return to the library. The Old Town Arvada branch of the Jefferson County Public Library was closed on January 28th following testing which showed methamphetamine contamination at the library and reopened on March 27th following remediation of the contamination. Earlier this month, JCPL filed a variance with the Colorado Department of Public Health requesting that the library he allowed to begin cleaning affected spaces and allow staff to return in a limited capacity. Cleaning crews began decontamination work on March 13th, according to JCPL Promotions and Marketing Manager Harry Todd. As of March 22nd, cleaning was mostly done, Todd said, and staff was allowed in all areas of the library. Once we've completed cleaning, we will submit clearance samples to a contractor and industrial hygienist, Todd said. Once those have been cleared and decontamination is remediated, we will be opening, we will be able to proceed with reopening procedures. By March 22nd, the library was mostly cleaned and samples had been sent to the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment for reopening clearance. As of March 23rd, the library's sorter reopened for returned items, which allows librarians to restock shelves and pull books on hold for pickup. Curbside pickup and drop-off at the Arvada Library are available in the back alley behind the library. Responding to concerns of parents who have worried about meth contamination spreading to pages of books that would be potentially handled by children, Todd said the JCPL team is working with experts at CDPHE and following their guidance. 
All of the research they've pointed us towards indicates that's not a concern, Todd said. Of course, this is an ongoing point of interest, and we are staying in touch with CDPHE and following the experts for guidance. Todd said the library will reopen when its staff can ensure the safety of patrons. We are eager to reopen the Arvada Library and very excited for that, Todd said. We're making positive progress to do so in a safe way for all our patrons. The Arvada Library is back to its normal hours as of March 27th. In an FAQ page posted to the library's website, details for how future meth contamination incidents might be avoided are spelled out. Quote, JCPL is investigating piloting environmental sensors at the Arvada Library, the statement says. These sensors show promise in detecting incidents of smoking and vaping in the areas where they are installed. The company that manufactures this equipment states that they're capable of detecting methamphetamine smoke. We are investigating integration of the detectors and notification protocols into our cameras and security systems. In addition to detection systems, JCPL is hiring a part-time position to assist our safety and security coordinator. The statement continues. The intent of the hire is to share some of the workload so that we can apply more focus on identifying and addressing behaviors that impact our ability to be a safe and welcoming space for all. Remembering Moses Walker, a musician and friend beyond compare. The Clam Daddy's band leader passed away in March after one last big show at the O by Riley Dunn. Moses Walker never told anyone the key. He'd begin a song, steady, but before long, his left hand would begin racing up and down the guitar neck, finding chords and unique voicings, all while anchored by his gravelly, inviting baritone. If you were lucky enough to play with Moses, you'd best get with it. He'd punctuate a good run of a tune with a smile and a warm, mighty fine. If you struggled to keep up, well, he wouldn't say much of anything. Mo, by all accounts, didn't have a negative bone in his body. When Mo was diagnosed with stage 4 brain and lung cancer in November, he knew his time was up. Friends say he wasn't sad about his condition, but accepted his prognosis with grace and levity. Before his passing on March 3rd, Mo played one last big show on February 5th, a celebration of his music and life at his favorite venue, the Oriental Theater. Accompanied by over two dozen musicians who played with him at various points in his career. Thanks for coming to my funeral, Walker remarked at one point during the four-hour set. The remark might have come across as morbid if uttered by anyone else, but it was folksily on brand for Walker. Walker's musical career is the stuff of legend. Spanning at least five decades, the impressions Walker's left were many, while the specifics of his life are harder to come by. One old friend, John Furphy recounts Walker living in Allentown, Pennsylvania in the 1990s and forming a local group called Moses and the Lost Sheep. Although, around that time. The band went through a few iterations, namely as Nosmo King, 
no smoking, and no dogs allowed. Around this time, Walker got married and moved to a horse farm outside of Coopersburg. Shortly thereafter, Walker's wife died. Around 1997, he decided to follow his harmonica player, Tom, out to Colorado. Furphy recalled the rowdy nature of Walker's early shows. I booked them to appear at an outdoor gathering for the community staff at WMUH-FM from the campus of Muhlenberg College, Furphy said. Before his performance, he cut his left hand badly. Still, he wrapped it up and performed a full set as the blood trickled onto his guitar. I went with the band to performance at a dive bar, since torn down, next to the railroad tracks in South Bethlehem, Furphy continued. They were barely into their first set when someone at the bar threw what was believed to be an M80 at them. Without missing a beat, Moses leaned into the microphone and said, That's all right. People often shoot at me when I'm out. In Colorado, Walker established himself as a singular presence in the state's music scene. First with his seminal band, The Clam Daddies, and later with a variety of collaborations, including Moses Walker and Friends, Walker Whalen, and Walker Shellist, among others. Besides being a prodigally talented musician, Walker's repertoire included hundreds of songs, ranging from standards to originals to contemporary tunes. Walker is remembered by those who knew him as a compassionate, caring friend and an exceedingly positive presence. Moses was the most encouraging and positive musical person I knew, always with a kind word and quick to smile. Michael Whalen, who played with Walker often, said, Just about every musician that played with him came away richer for the experience. He had this amazingly unique voice. We used to say he was like the long-lost brother of Leon Redbone and Tom Waits. Moses was upbeat and always offered to help me out with anything I needed, Ronnie Shellist said. He was there for me when I was at some of the lowest points in my life. I'm not sure how I could have gotten through some of it without his friendship. Moses also had the uncanny ability to make me laugh even when I was feeling way down. Hell, he made everyone laugh. I can say that he was more than generous with his time, knowledge and resources to new musicians and singers. Acclaimed soul singer Hazel Miller said he was always optimistic and supportive. Andy Burkaw, who played bass with Walker at over 150 shows between 1997 and 2004, and scores more over the years, said that Walker strived to mentor young musicians with his genre-spanning talents, which ranged from Tin Pan Alley staples to American songbook standards, and just about anything else under the sun. He really liked to play with younger musicians that weren't jaded, Burkhaw said. With it, we're still kind of open-minded music. And Moe's big deal and kind of just teaching about, you know, all different styles of music and music that maybe younger people have never heard before, introducing new genres to young players. He's the most unconventional band leader you 
that you would ever meet, Burkhoff continued. Because he didn't have a set list, and he would never tell you what key you're playing in, because he wanted you to figure it out. And, you know, Mo said he nearly, he knew nearly 500 songs. And so you could play with Mo three or seven gigs and not repeat the same song. Ryan Chris, who plays, who fronts popular Colorado country band Ryan Chris and the Rough Cuts, said Walker took Chris under his wing musically, advising him on tricks for soloing and different ways to play. Before then, the pair bonded over Walker's signature beard. I first met him around 15 years ago, Chris said. I had no beard myself then, but some years later I started growing it and... Through the years, we always laughed because each time it was longer and he had more approval. It's finally starting to come in there, youngling, he'd say each time and even after it had gotten really long. He spoke always in truth and wonder, Chris continued. He was a truly unique man with a truly unique style. I have never seen anyone with a music sense like his. The swagger in his low vocals or the swing in his guitar playing, he never ceased to amaze me and I was enthralled every time I saw him play and sing. He taught me a lot about music, and I learned to be freer in my exploration of sounds and playing and soloing. He was a great inspiration to me. Melanie Owen was a fan of the Clam Daddies, who nervously attended one of Walker's jams, where Walker made her immediately comfortable and forged a lasting friendship. When I got to sit in and fangirl at his jam at the D-Notes, he was really encouraging, Owen said. Moses had this way of talking to you that made you believe you could do it, whatever it was. He was generous with his music and his time and his encouragement and made such a positive impact on so many musicians and fan family. I'm really lucky I got to be friends with Mo. Mo at the O. A month before he died, Walker played one of his last one last show at what was likely his favorite venue, the Oriental Theater, which his old bassist Burkhaw purchased about 14 years ago. Burkhaw said that before he died, Walker, a mainstay at the Oriental or the O, as he called it, wanted to play final shows at his favorite places, La Dolce Vita Coffee Shop in Arvada and the O. B.B. Walker's banjoist for many years, first with the Clam Daddies and then with Moses Walker and Friends, frequently accompanied Walker at La Dolce Vita and will be taking over his standing slot there every fourth Sunday of the month. Walker was an awesome person, proficient singer, musician, and held great affection for the people in his life. B. said, he will be greatly missed. B was working on recording Walker singing 20 of his favorite songs shortly before his death and will make the recordings, which she describes as sounding as if, quote, he's in the room with you, available to anyone who wants them via her email, be at bebe dot bz. On February 5th, Walker took the stage at the O one last time, joined by over 20 musicians from throughout his career. Despite his failing health, Walker put on a tour de force, playing for over four hours and completing over 40 songs. 
He probably played for like four hours straight, Burkhaw said. Everyone else ran out of gas and he was still going. It was, it was like the most epic day for me. In all the years I've owned the theater and for so many people that came, it was so incredibly rad. Whelan helped Burkhaw plan the events and called the concert the most important show I've ever been a part of. It was a beautiful retrospective of his life and music career, Willen said. Local blues legends Hazel Miller and Erica Brown sang with Moses. Former members of the Clam Daddies reunited to play songs together one last time. Most people didn't don't get a chance to say goodbye, Willen continued. We gave that to Moses and all his friends. Moses was so excited and full of energies in the days leading up to the show where he performed for over four hours. I believe it might have been one of his greatest days and shows of his life. Walker might not have been ready to go. He had plans to travel more and had designs for how he'd spend his earnings from the Oriental show. But his friends were able to give him a proper send-off in traditional Moses Walker fashion. A live stream of Walker's final show can be found on the Colorado Music Network's YouTube page. Everything was perfect, Burkhaw said. And at the end of the night, we got him home. And you know, we went to dinner a couple days later, and I paid him, and we talked about the show, and he's super stoked. Mo said it's the best paying gig he ever had. I'm honored that I could walk him to the end and give him that last hurrah and be in a room full of love, Willen said. When Walker died, Burkhaw left a message for his old friend on the O's marquee. R.I.P. Moses Walker. New Edgewater Bakery asks customers to think outside the box by Corinne Westman. When Ariel Israel, Ty Webb, and Megan Reed started Black Box Bakery in 2019, it was a wholesale bakery. Its selections of products, ingredients, and toppings were limited based on the wholesale model, but the bakers wanted to be more creative. They wanted to expand into retail, and this month, that dream came true. Black Box Bakery has opened its first retail location inside the Edgewater Public Market at 5505 West 20th Avenue. The bakery hosted its soft opening March 17th with a grand opening March 19th, both of which were well-received with pastries flying off the baking sheets. Black Box Bakery offers a rotating selection of croissants, sweet and savory pastries, cookies, coffee, tea, and more. The menu also features a gluten-free cookie and a limited vegan swirl. Israel also noted the signature Black Box Pastry, or mystery pastry. She said the question customers can only ask beforehand is whether it's savory or sweet. The bakery is currently open until 3 p.m., but Israel described a long-term plan to expand its hours and menu. The owners are developing croissant sandwiches to serve at lunchtime and other desserts to serve in the evenings. After six months of renovation, Israel said she and her fellow owners were happy to have their first retail location open. She really appreciated the public market atmosphere, where there's friendly rapport among all the businesses. We promote each other's businesses, she said. There's a great diversity of concepts here. You can get everything in one go. 
Black Box Bakery is open from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. Wednesday through Friday and 9 a.m. to 3 p.m. Saturdays and Sundays. Customers can order at the counter inside or online with and pick up at the exterior window. For more information, visit blackboxbakery.com. Polis targets local land use and bid to make housing less costly. By Jesse Paul and Elliot Winsler, The Colorado Sun. Fast-growing, housing-strapped Colorado communities would be barred from limiting construction of duplexes, triplexes, and add-on housing units under a marquee measure unveiled in March by Governor Jared Polis and Democratic state lawmakers aimed at addressing the state's housing crisis by increasing residential density. The land use bill would also block limits on how many unrelated people can live in the same home and prevent Colorado's largest cities from restricting what kind of housing can be built near transit stops. A separate measure, meanwhile, would ban municipalities from imposing new growth caps and eliminate existing ones. The land use proposal would apply differently throughout the states, depending on population size and housing needs, with the biggest impacts on Colorado's most populous cities, Denver, Aurora, Boulder, Lakewood, Colorado Springs, and Grand Junction, but also rules for rural communities and resort towns, which have faced their own unique housing struggles. This is an affordability crisis around housing in our state, Governor Polis told the Colorado Sun. Absent action, it's only going to get worse. We absolutely want to move our way, our state in a way where home ownership and rent are more affordable, and this will help get that done. Polis said the bills, one of which is expected to be more than 100 pages long, represent the most ambitious land use policy changes in Colorado in about 40 years. The policy changes will take years to go into effect. But the governor said if the state doesn't act, Colorado could start to look like California, where homes are even less affordable and traffic is worse. We want to make sure we get ahead of the curve, he said. Local government leaders have been wary of the proposals previewed in the governor's state of the state address in January because of how it would restrict their power to create and enforce housing policies. Respectfully, get off our lawn. Kevin Bomber, executive director of the Colorado Municipal League, said at a gathering of local officials in February when describing negotiations on the legislation with Polis' office. The organization's board voted to oppose the land use bill last week, Bomber said. CML opposes this sweeping and breathtaking attempt to centralize local land use and zoning policy in the state capitol while doing nothing to guarantee affordability. Bomber said in a written statement, also calling the measure a, quote, breathtaking power grab. The only Colorado mayor who spoke in support of the bill at a Capitol News conference on March 22nd, rolling out the legislation was Boulder Mayor Aaron Brockett. There's still some work to be done, and I'm sure there'll be challenge changes hashed out, he said, but there is so much in value here. The bills are also expected to meet fierce pushback from the few Republicans in the legislature. 
who are in the minority of the House and Senate and have little say over which measures pass or fail. The measures have been the talk of the Capitol since the 2023 legislative session began in January, but the details of what's in the legislation have been under wraps until now. Democrats will have less than two months to pass the bills before through the House and Senate before the lawmaking term ends in early May. The governor's office says the land use bill was drafted after more than 120 meetings with housing and business experts and local officials and through research on similar policies passed in other states. Oregon, for instance, passed a law in 2019 requiring cities with a population of greater than 1,000 to allow duplexes, while cities with more than 25,000 people must allow townhomes, duplexes, triplexes, and fourplexes. Representative Stephen Woodrow, a Denver Democrat who will be one of the prime sponsors of the land use bill, said the measure is supposed to prevent some Colorado communities erecting barriers to development while their neighbors sprawl out of control, which can cause gentrification and water issues. We have to do this at the state level because local po- political pressures are such that it hasn't been, has, hasn't been done until now, Woodrow said. The measure reshaping land use in Colorado would apply only to municipalities, not counties. The governor's office and the bill's sponsors believe they can impose policy restrictions on cities and towns because housing is an issue of statewide concern, a position that could be tested in court. Research has shown that increasing housing supply, like building units, like duplexes and townhomes, can increase affordability. Senate Majority Leader Dominic Moreno, a Commerce City Democrat and a lead sponsor of the bill, said at a news conference as the bill was unveiled. Yet, these types of housing are often prohibited in many of the communities and don't need, that, don't, that need them the most, and that doesn't make sense. An unanswered question is whether developers will still take advantage of the bill, should it pass. I think that people are anxious to provide housing said J.J. Ament, president and CEO of the Denver Metro Chamber of Commerce, which supports the bill. I don't think it really is a capital problem in Colorado. It is regulatory and environment. I think the capital will flow because the demand is there. The legislation is slated to be formally introduced this week. The measures were described in detail by The Sun, by their sponsors, and the governor. The requirements will vary for different parts of the state depending on which of five categories they fall into based on their population and housing needs. Here's how the requirements would break down. Tier 1, with cities that include Arvada, Aurora, Boulder, Brighton, Broomfield, Castle Pines, Castle Rock, Centennial, Cherry Hills Village, Columbine Valley, Commerce City, Denver, Edgewater, Inglewood, Erie, Federal Heights, Glendale, Golden, Greenwood Village, Lafayette, Lakewood, Littleton, Lock Bowie, Lone Tree, Longmont, Louisville, North Glen, Parker, Sheridan, Superior, Thornton, Westminster, and Wheat Ridge. Outside of the Denver metro area, Greeley, Fort Collins, Loveland, Windsor, Colorado Springs, Fountain, Grand Junction, and Pueblo would also be considered Tier 1 cities. Cities in this category have a population of at least 1,000 and are in a metropolitan planning organization, 
such as the Denver Regional Council of Governments, with a population greater than 1 million and in a census urbanized area, with a population greater than 75,000. Cities with a population greater than 25,000 and in a metropolitan planning organization with a population less than 1 million would also fall into this category. Tier 1 cities would be most affected by the land use bill. They would be prohibited from restricting duplexes, triplexes, and multiplexes up to six units, as well as accessory dwelling units, sometimes referred to as ADUs or granny flats. They would also be prohibited from requiring parking tied to those kinds of housing. ADUs are habitable structures that are on the same property as a house, but a separate building such as an apartment over garage. Many municipalities across the state restrict where and how they can be built. Tier 1 cities would also have to allow the construction of multifamily housing near transit centers, which are defined as the half-mile area around fixed rail stations. Cities wouldn't be allowed to require new off-street parking for multifamily homes built in transit corridors, though developers could provide any amount of parking they feel is needed. Tier 1 cities would also be subject to development guidelines aimed at promoting housing density and walkable communities around so-called key transit corridors which are defined as areas within a quarter mile of bus rapid transit and high frequency bus routes. Finally, tier one cities will also be required to complete a housing needs ba plan based on a state housing needs assessment, as well as participate in long-term planning to stop sprawl and address environmental concerns like greenhouse gas emissions, air pollution, and limited water. Tier one cities have the option of meeting minimum land use requirements set by the state, which the governor's office refers to as the flexible option. If not, they would be forced to adopt a state-developed land use code. The state code would be created by Colorado Department of Local Affairs regulators at a later date. Tier 1 cities would have to submit codes compliant with the bill to the state by December 2024, any Tier 1 cities that don't meet the minimum standards under the legislation's so-called flexible option would be forced to operate under the model land use code starting in December 2025. Tier 2 is next, which includes Decono, Fort Lupton, Firestone, Frederick, Evans, Berthoud, Johnstown, Timnath, Eaton, Milliken, Severance, and Monument. They are defined as cities in a metropolitan planning organization that have a population of between 5,000 and 25,000 and in a county with a population greater than 250,000. Tier 2 cities would be prohibited from restricting accessory dwelling units and parking associated with ADUs, though they would be able to block duplexes, triplexes, and multiplexes. They would also be exempt from provisions around transit centers and corridors. They would, however, still be required to conduct housing needs assessments and create the same type of long-term housing and sprawl and environmental plans. Tier 2 cities would also have to submit codes compliant with the bill to the state by December 2024. Any Tier 1 cities that don't meet the minimum standards under the legislation's so-called flexible option 
would be forced to operate under the model land use code starting in December 2025. Another category is dubbed Rural Resort Job Centers. This category includes Aspen, Avon, Breckenridge, Crested Butte, Dillon, Durango, Frisco, Glenwood Springs, Mountain Village, Silverthorne, Snowmass Village, Steamboat Springs, Telluride, Vale, and Winter Park. Rural Resort Job Centers are defined as municipalities that have a population of at least 1,000 and at least 1,200 jobs and are outside of a metropolitan planning organization. They also have regional transit service with at least 20 trips per day. This category is intended to prompt local governments to work with their surrounding region to address housing shortfalls. The communities would be required to allow ADUs, but then have to develop a regional housing needs plan to identify where zoning should happen for duplexes, triplexes, and other multiplexes. The communities would also have to work together to boost transit corridors and housing surrounding them. Quote, there's often a dynamic in rural areas where people may live in one community but work in another. And because of that, the additional flexibility is that they can reach agreements with their partner communities to have a more regional approach to some of the goals that are in the bill, Moreno said. Like Tier 1 and Tier 2 cities, rural resort job centers would have the ability to choose between a minimum level of housing policies while maintaining some of their own design standards or be forced to adopt a man model land use code that will be created by the state. The specifics on those two options are not laid out in the bill and would be determined later by state regulators. The goals aren't as stringent as the ones for urban municipalities, said Moreno. Rural resort job centers would have to sub submit land use codes compliant with the bill to the state by December 2026. Any rural resort job centers that don't meet the minimum standard under the bill's flexible option would have to operate under the state's model land use code starting in June of 2027. Yet another category is called the non-urban municipalities. Any municipality with a population greater than 5,000 falls into this category. As long as it's not in another category, including Alamosa, Brush, Canyon City, Carbondale, Cortez, Craig, Eagle, Fort Morgan, Gunnison, La Junta, Lamar, Montrose, Rifle, Sterling, Trinidad, and Wellington. Non-urban municipalities would be prohibited from restricting accessory dwelling units, but won't have requirements around duplexes, triplexes, and other multiplexes, or transit-oriented development. They also won't need to prepare a housing needs plan. This story is from the Colorado Sun, a journalist-owned news outlet based in Denver and covering the state. For more, and to support the Colorado Sun, visit coloradosun.com. The Colorado Sun is a partner in the Colorado News Conservancy, owner of Colorado Community Media. Mind Softball defeats CSU Pueblo in windswept series by Corinne Westman. When it comes to spring in Colorado, Mother Nature is always throwing curveballs. The Colorado School of Mines softball team was initially scheduled to host a four-game series with CSU Pueblo March 25th and 26th. However, with cold weather predicted for March 26th, the series was moved up to March 24th and 25th. 
The Ore Diggers defeated the Thunder Wolves 5-4 in the first March 24th game and then won the second game 7-6. The next day was windy and cold, and the teams had hoped to play at least one game of the scheduled doubleheader. However, the winds wouldn't die down, and the temperatures remained below the RMAC required minimum. Mines Athletics confirmed, and the teams canceled softball for the day. On March 24th, though, the Ore Diggers started off strong and scored two runs in the opening game's first inning. After the Thunder Wolves took a 4-3 lead at the top of the sixth inning, the Ore Diggers answered back with two runs and strong defense in the seventh, closing out the game 5-4. CSU Pueblo had seven hits in the first game to mine six, and the Ore Diggers also racked up three errors. In the second game, though, the Ore Diggers only had one error to the Thunder Wolves, two. But Mines still lost the hit count 10-9. In the second game, the Thunder Wolves scored three runs in the first inning, but the Ore Diggers answered back with three of their own. Three runs in the fourth inning and one run in the fifth helped Mines keep its lead, winning the second game 7-6. to six. Freshman Kendall Aragon had a standout afternoon for the Ore Diggers, scoring three runs, two walks, and an RBI. In her seventh complete game of the season, senior pitcher Sadriana Rodriguez allowed four runs, two earned on seven hits. She also struck out four batters. The teams also now accumulated 58 stolen bases on the season, surpassing last year's 53. Mines travels to Colorado Springs next weekend and then takes on MSU Denver at home April 6th and 7th. For more information, including the full 2023 schedule, visit MindsAthletics.com. Local voices. Climate scientists issue their latest stern warning while farmers in Colorado's Republican River Basin grapple with how to be sustainable. Big Pivots by Alan Best. The International Panel on Climate Change has issued its latest report, warning of a dangerous temperature threshold that we'll breach during the next decade if we fail to dramatically reduce emissions. A Colorado Legislative Committee on the same day addressed water withdrawals in the Republican River Basin that must be curbed by decade's end. In both Problems largely created in the 20th century must now be addressed quickly to avoid the scowls of future generations. The River Basin, which lies east of Denver, sandwiched by Interstates 70 and 76, differs from nearly all others in Colorado in that it gets no annual snowmelt from the state's mountain peaks. Even so, By tapping the Ogallala and other aquifers, farmers have made it one of the state's most agriculturally productive areas. They grow potatoes and watermelons, but especially corn and other plants fed to cattle and hogs. This is Colorado without mountains, an ocean of big skies and rolling sandhills. Republican River farmers face two overlapping problems. One is is of declining wells. Given current pumping rates, they will go dry. The only question is when. Some already have. More immediate is how these wells have depleted flows of the Republican River and its tributaries into Nebraska and Kansas. 
Those states cried foul, citing a 1943 interstate compact. Colorado in 2016 agreed to pair 25,000 of its 450,000 to 500,000 irrigated acres within the basin. Colorado has a December 2029 deadline. The Republican River Water Conservation District has been paying farmers to retire land from irrigation. Huge commodity prices discourage this, but district officials said they are confident they can achieve 10,000 acres before the end of 2024. Last year, legislators sweetened the pot with an allocation of $30 million and a like amount for the retirement of irrigated land in the San Luis Valley, which has a similar problem. Since 2004, when it was created, the Republican River District self-encumbered $156 million in fee collections and debt for the transition. It's unclear that the district can achieve the 2030 goal. The bill, unanimously approved by the Colorado House Agriculture, Water, and Natural Resources Committee, will, if it becomes law, task the Colorado Water Center at Colorado State University with documenting the economic loss to the region and to Colorado altogether if irrigated Republican River Basin agriculture ceases altogether. The farmers may need more help as the deadline approaches. This all-or-nothing proposition is not academic. Kevin Rain, the state water engineer, testified that he must shut down all basin wells if compact requirements are not met. The focus is on the Republicans' south fork between Ray and Burlington. Legislators were told that Relying solely upon water that falls from the sky diminishes production 75 to 80%. In seeking this study, the River District wants legislators to be aware of what is at stake. Rod Lenz, who chairs the River District Board, put it in human terms. His extended family's 5,000-acre farm amid the Sandhills can't support 13 families, he told me. Returns to grasslands, that same farm could support only two families. An evolution of accountability is how Lenz describes the big picture in the Republican River Basin. We all knew it was coming, but it was so far in the future. Well, the future is here now. The district has 10 communities charged with investigating ways to sustain the basin's economy and leave its small towns thriving. Can it attract internet technology developers? Can the remaining water be used for higher value purposes? Can new technology irrigate more efficiently? We do know we must evolve, Linz told me. The farmers began large-scale pumping with the arri arrival of center pivot sprinklers, a technology invented in Colorado in 1940. They're remarkably efficient at extracting underground water. Now, they must figure out sustainable agriculture. That's a very difficult conversation. Aquifers, created over millions of years ago, are being depleted in a century. The Republican River shares similarities with the better-known and much larger Colorado River Basin. The mid-20th century was the time of applying human ingenuity to developing development of water resources. Now, 
Along with past miscalculations, the warming climate is exacting a price, aridification of the Colorado River Basin. Globally, the latest reports from climate scientists paints an even greater challenge. To avoid really bad stuff, they say, we must have our greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. They insist upon need for new technologies, including ways to suck carbon out of the atmosphere that have yet to be scaled. We need that evolution of accountability described in Colorado's Republican River Basin. We need a revolution of accountability on the global scale. Alan Best, a longtime Colorado journalist, publishes Big Pivots. You can find more at bigpivots.com. Say goodbye to winter with a mix of indoor entertainment. Coming attractions by Clark Reader. While March is technically the beginning of spring, it isn't until April that it really starts to feel like we're transitioning from the cold weather to something more pleasant. April is the month where we move from inside activities to music under the stars, meals on patios, and art shows spilling out into the street. With that in mind, here's a roundup of activities to say a fond, depending on your interests, farewell to winter. Clark's Concert of the Week, John Mayer, solo at Ball Arena. When John Mayer first appeared on the scene in the early 2000s, I think even few of even his most devoted fans, of which I am one, could have predicted the journey he'd take in the ensuing 20 years. He mastered the pop guitarist thing and explored a range of roles. Blues maestro, folky troubadour, and even jam band favorite. During all this, he worked hard to stay true to himself, and the result is a wonderful song catalog full of radio mainstays and hidden gems. To celebrate the first two decades of his career, Mayer has embarked on a solo tour, which stops at Ball Arena, 1000 Chopper Circle in Denver at 7.30 p.m. on Monday, April 3rd. He'll be joined by the fantastic folk blues singer Joy Olorukun for what I'm certain will be a truly special evening. Get tickets at Ticketmaster.com. Celebrate the legendary Charles Mingus, D.U. Charles Mingus is one of jazz's most incomparable voices. His compositions are as nuanced and innovative as the writings of legends like Miles Davis and Louis, Louis Armstrong. And the Mingus Big Band has been celebrating his music since 1979. It is under the artistic direction of Sue Mingus and was built off the Mingus dynasty septet that she formed after his death in 1979. The 14-piece band will be performing at the Robert and Judy Newman Center for the Performing Arts at the University of Denver, 2344 East Live Avenue at 7.30 p.m. on Thursday, April 6th. Anyone who loves jazz or wants to learn more about one of the 20th century's most dynamic composers, shouldn't miss this event, this performance. According to provided information, the group, quote, features new arrangements of Mingus compositions in a larger band format that Mingus was not always able to organize in his lifetime. Get tickets at newmancenterpresents.com, N-E-W-M-A-N, centerpresents.com. Visit Brazil via Diego Figueiredo's guitar. 
It is difficult to imagine a better music to get you in the mood for warmer weather than Brazilian jazz, which makes guitarist Diego Figueiredo's performance at the Lakewood Cultural Center for 70 South Allison Parkway at 7.30 p.m. April 7th, perfectly timed. According to provided information, Figueiredo takes a unique approach to jazz and classical solo guitar. He's a Grammy-nominated guitarist who has performed in more than 60 countries and has an international reputation as one of the world's best jazz musicians. For information and tickets, call 303-987-7845 or visit lakewood.org slash LCC presents. Explore the transience of photography at Walker Fine Art. Walker Fine Arts, 300 West, 11th Avenue, Number A, in Denver. Latest exhibition, Transient Presence. Began in mid-March to celebrate Denver's Month of Photography, but runs through Saturday, May 13th, to give fans of the medium more time to appreciate the work of six photographers. This group exhibition features the work of Melanie Walker, Bonnie Lakota, Ju Wu, Jane Fulton-Alt, Kevin Hoth, and Katie Kendall, all of whom explore the flexibility and impact of photography in unique ways. As is always the case with exhibits at Walker, expect to be both challenged and delighted in equal measure. Find more information at walkerfinearts.com slash transient dash presence. Dining of the delectable kind of ASLD, the Art Students League of Denver is unveiling the sixth version of its biennial functional ceramics exhibit, Delect Table, the Fine Art of Dining, at the League, 200 Grant Street in Denver, where it is on display from April 7th through May 21st. According to provided information, the show features 90 pieces by more than 70 ceramists, as well as accompanying 2D and fiber arts works by ASLD faculty. The show was juried by Andrew Clark, a Tennessee ceramics artist and current gallery manager at Companion Gallery in Humboldt, Tennessee. There will be an opening reception from 5.30 to 8.30 p.m. on April 7th, and there will also be discussions, workshops, and more, more held during Delect Tables run. For all the necessary information, visit asld.org slash delectable. Clark Reader's column on culture appears on a weekly basis. He can be reached at Clark with an E dot reader at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to the Jefferson County News. My name is Gregory Haddock. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.